Section 14 of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Joan of Arc, Part 3. portion of the ditch or fosse that surrounded the city was quickly filled in by her direction, and, while they prepared to cross and make the attack, the English offered to capitulate, reserving the privilege of marching away with their effects without molestation. As they passed from the gates, Joan perceived a number of French prisoners manacled and driven before them. She refused to let them pass, and the king was obliged to ransom them. The way was now open for their progress to Reims. Upon approaching that city, a deputation of the citizens went out to meet the king, presenting him the keys of the city and acknowledging him their sovereign. Joan led the way with her white banner always unfurled and floating like a beckoning spirit before the impetuous and worshipping army who followed wherever it conducted them. Her face beamed the triumph and joy she felt. Passing through the massive gateway, they went with a conqueror's step along the thronged streets, and then to the cathedral to offer prayers and thanksgiving. This cathedral stood in a square, from which the six principal streets of Reims diverged. It was here that, two days after, the promised coronation took place. The holy oil of Clovis, secretly kept in the old church of St. Remy's, was brought with great ceremony by priests who were met at the entrance of the cathedral by the archbishop. He received it, and, approaching the king, who bowed reverently before it, consecrated him with all the state and pomp that the mysterious aid by which the event had been attained could suggest. The dark, massive walls, from which graceful arches sprang and fell, resting upon tall clustered columns, the curious and elaborate carvings everywhere visible, the vast interior crowded with ferocious soldiers, bearing their battle-axes and crossbows, knights with plumed helmets and gold-embroidered surcoats, the glittering mail of the men-at-arms, the fair and noble ladies of Reims in their enormous and lofty headdresses, the nobles in rich coronation robes, grouped about their monarch, who stood prominent in the stateliest array of royalty, the pompous archbishop, and above all, the maid with helmed head, like a war-goddess, fair and terrible. Standing near the king, her sacred sword sheathed, and her banner dropping in folds upon her white armor, together formed a scene that filled the superstitious throng with a feeling of awe and wonder, and hushed them all to silence. When the crown, a golden bauble to gain which such rivers of blood had flowed, was placed upon the monarch's head, Joan burst into tears and prostrated herself at his feet, beseeching him, now that her promises were fulfilled, to permit her to return to her own valley, and with her sisters watch the flocks upon the hills, and be happy and peaceful again, were their grieved parents. All who listened wept with her, but Charles, unwilling to lose one upon whom his battles depended, would not consent to her departure till the English were driven from France. As a mark of his gratitude, he ennobled her family, giving them the title of Dulis, in allusion to the lilies on her banner, and presented her with a handsome estate. The movements of the army were now like so many triumphal processions. City after city surrendered without resistance, till it arrived at St. Denis. 
Joan refused to proceed further, warned by her voices, or presentiments, that she could not advance with safety. Regardless of her advice, the commanders, elated with past success, pushed forward to Paris. The Duke of Bedford was alarmed at the rapid progress of the Orleanists. He sent to the Duke of Burgundy for assistance, and afterwards to the powerful Cardinal Winchester, who hastily raised forces in England, and came to Paris with the young Henry VI, in order to crown him there. Thus strengthened, and in possession of the Seine both above and below the city, it was impossible for Charles VII to besiege it with his army, ill-provided with the necessary provisions and equipments. In the very face of impossibilities, he advanced towards the strong and well-prepared city, depending on the mysterious power of the maid, and the enthusiasm of his followers. They carried one of the outposts, and the brave and fearless Joan cleared the first fosse with a bound, firmly maintaining her seat, and in another spring was beyond the mound that separated it from the second where but few dared to follow her. Her conspicuous dress was a fair mark for the showers of arrows falling thickly around her. Regardless of her danger, she sounded the depth of the fosse with her lance, but, while urging the troops to follow, an arrow darted through the links of her armor and pierced deeply, causing such a flow of blood as obliged her to seek shelter. The French were repulsed with severe losses. The headlong impetuosity that had served them before would not calmly brook reserves and they were ready to heap reproaches and harsh epithets upon the brave girl who had warned them not to make the rash attempt upon Paris. Disheartened and weak with pain and loss of blood, she could not be prevailed upon to return to the camp till after nightfall. The French now abandoned the hope of securing Paris, and occupied the winter in laying siege to two towns, one of which was successfully carried by the exertions of Joan, the other abandoned in a panic. In the meantime, the Duke of Burgundy assembled a formidable army, and with the English troops in the spring of 1430, laid siege to Compiègne, where the French were concentrated. The maid threw herself into the city, and on the second day, headed a sally against the besiegers. In the beginning of the struggle, her party was successful, but the English rallied and drove back the assailants. Joan remained in the rear, to cover the retreat of her followers, reached the bridge too late to enter the gates which suddenly closed, and, Betrayed by the governor of the city, she was left among the crowd upon the bridge. Conspicuous by her dress, a purple surcoat brilliantly embroidered with gold, thrown over her armor, she was immediately seized by a Picard archer, and dragged from her horse. She surrendered to the bastard of Vendôme, a distinguished knight, who conducted her to the English camp and placed her under a secure guard. The soldiers crowded about and gazed upon her, and the English nobles and Burgundians could not restrain their exclamations of surprise at finding the witch, the sorceress, the great object of terror, to be only a simple, delicate, and fair young girl. They were more delighted at her capture than if they had taken a host of French prisoners, and assembling in showy array in the plain before Compiègne, sent up shouts of victory. Joan was sold to John of Luxembourg, who sent her under a strong guard to the castle in Beaulieu, in Picardy, where she was confined in the highest tower. But soon after, from political motives, he had her removed to his own castle of Beaurevoir. Here she could only gaze from the narrow windows of the loftiest tower upon the meadows, the streams, and the blue hills, beyond which she could fancy see her peaceful home, her mourning parents, and her young and loved Homet, with whom she would have given worlds to breathe the free air again. A close prisoner, and in despair for France, 
fearful too for her own fate, she passed the weary days in prayer and weeping. She was filled with forebodings of evil. She had endeavored to effect her escape from the castle of Beaulieu, and even now from the high towers of Beaurevoir the intrepid girl attempted a descent. She fell and was taken up half-dead by the ladies of Luxembourg, who bestowed the most tender care upon her. They were won by her gentleness, and doubly attracted by sympathy for her grief that she could no longer aid France, and her tears and anxiety for the king for whom she suffered, but who made no effort for her deliverance. She knew that her present captor had sold her to the Duke of Burgundy, and suffered herself to be led away from her new-found friends, who in vain pled with tears at the feet of John of Luxembourg, entreating him not to deliver her into the hands of the English, thirsting as they did, for the blood of one who had cost them so dearly. She was conveyed to Arras, and from thence to the dungeon-keep of Crotoy, where she could look out upon the sea and watch the ships gliding to and fro, or driving along on the waves of a tempest. A clear day revealed the distant coast of England. It reminded her of the Duke of Orléans, who, like herself, a close prisoner, wore his life away in chains on a foreign shore. All her fire and spirit was roused, for it had been one of her treasured hopes to secure his release, when the French arms had triumphed. Joan was consoled and strengthened by a priest who, likewise a captive, said mass daily in her presence. In this she heartily joined, her old enthusiasm returning and her courage revived by the voices which assured her that she should be delivered when she had seen the king of the English. Nearly a year had passed since her first imprisonment, when she was claimed by the bishop of the diocese in which she was taken, at the instigation of Cardinal Winchester, whose plan was to crown Henry VI, and at the same time disgrace the pretensions of Charles VII, by burning the girl who had secured his coronation as a witch or sorceress. By order of the vicar of the Inquisition, Joan was taken to Rouen in February 1431. Released from her long confinement, she exulted in the pure fresh air of freedom, and rode cheerfully along with her keepers, though still manacled with chains. Approaching Rouen, the inhabitants thronged the entrance to catch a glimpse of the wonderful being who was represented, at one moment, a beautiful woman, an angel, and at the next, described as a demon who possessed a terrible power over her enemies. They hardly knew whether to shrink from her gaze, or touch and kiss her garments. All were filled with amazement at beholding so fair and harmless a girl. The women of Rouen, in their tall muslin caps, red petticoats, and clattering cabots, followed her through the streets, and with motherly protection would have shielded her from the denunciations about to descend upon her, could they have rescued her from the grim monks who closely guarded her. Joan felt her spirit depressed as they traced the narrow winding streets of Rouen, lined with peak-roofed houses, decorated with curious carvings and innumerable balconies. Towers and spires with rich-cut ornaments loomed up along the narrow way which was crowded and confused with passing donkeys, laden with well-filled panniers and driven by quaintly dressed women and children, while men in silken jackets and long-peaked shoes added their sonorous cries to the babble of voices. Joan, weary and bewildered, was soon led before the impatient assemblage, eager for their victim. Bishops, monks, doctors of theology and of the canon law, enveloped in stately robes, sat ready to pronounce judgment upon a girl whom they were bribed to condemn by some means, if she were guilty or not. Alone in the midst of this subtle court, without the sympathy of a friend or the aid of a counsel, 
Joan sat with intrepid bearing, her spirit free, though her limbs were chained. Upon being required to swear to speak the truth, she consented, but refused to reveal anything connected with her visions. She was ordered to repeat the pater and the ave, her judges thinking that she would not dare to if possessed with an evil spirit. To their surprise she readily assented if the presiding bishop would hear her confess. This touching and confiding demand overcame the bishop, who adjourned the sitting, and afterwards deputed one of his assessors to question the accused. As it was found impossible to convict her on the ground of sorcery, she was charged with heresy, since she refused to acknowledge the authority of the church militant. She told them she held her belief in God alone. The long-continued trial, and her efforts to sustain herself, induced an illness, from which she had not recovered when she was again summoned to the hall of the castle where the court sat. Threats of torture were given to intimidate her, but she adhered firmly to her account of the voices, and would still acknowledge none but the one God. They insisted upon her discarding the man's dress she wore, but to this she would not consent, it being her only protection, and the dress which her saints directed her to wear. Led back to the tower, where every movement was watched by keepers stationed near her, she became more severely ill. In this situation her tormentors visited her, hoping to make her yield her belief while too weak to maintain courage in her assertions. The angel Gabriel, said she, has appeared to strengthen me. They were obliged to leave her, firm and unyielding as she had ever been. In order to terrify her into submission, a scaffold was erected in the cemetery of St. Juan, behind the church of the same name. Joan was placed upon it in the midst of hussiers and torturers, a preacher and an executioner in his cart below her. Opposite, on another scaffolding, sat Cardinal Winchester and the bishops, with their assessors and scribes. The preacher, who was to exhort and urge her to submission, overdid the matter by exclaiming violently against Charles the Seventh, calling him a heretic and accepting Joan for a leader. This roused the indignation of the brave girl, who, in spite of threatened terrors, had the nobleness to defend the king who had deserted her. "'On my faith, sir, I undertake to tell you and to swear on pain of my life that he is the noblest Christian of all Christians, the sincerest lover of the faith of the church, and not what you call him,' exclaimed she boldly. "'Silence her!' cried out the bishop, who began to read the sentence of condemnation, abjure or be burnt, reached her ears. Those about and below her entreated her to save herself by acknowledging the power of the Pope. We pity you, Joan, urged the people who crowded about the scaffold. Overcome at last with fear and entreaties, she consented to abjure, on condition she should be delivered from the power of the English and be placed in the hands of the Church. What is to be done next? respectfully asked Carichon, the bishop, turning to Cardinal Winchester. "'Admit her to do penance,' answered the wily Englishman, which penance was to pass the rest of her days in imprisonment, on the bread of grief and the water of anguish. "'Take her back whence you brought her,' continued the bishop, while Joan, dumb with surprise and despair, could scarcely move. The poor girl had thought at least she was to be spared chains and the hateful dungeon." Even at this respite the English were so enraged that they pelted the bishop with stones, and the priests and doctors could escape only by promising they should soon have her again. 
she was led away to her prison-house and chained to a beam. But this did not satisfy the English, who attributed the continued success of the French arms to her sorcery, exerted even within the walls of a prison. The guards were ordered to hang her armor within reach, hoping she would be tempted to resume the dress, and thus break the conditions she had signed. The result was what they wished, and, as soon as the news reached the cardinal, he gladly exclaimed, She is caught! The inquisitor and others were deputed to visit and question her. She bravely faced them, and told them she had resumed the dress, because it was fitter for her, as long as she was guarded by men. Put me in a seemly prison, and I will be good and do whatever the church shall wish, said she. The next day it was told her she must die. She wept pitifully, tearing her hair and mourning that she was to endure the frightful torture of being burned. After the first burst of grief, she confessed, and asked to receive the sacrament, which was granted her, with the inconsistency of condemning her as a heretic, and at the same time granting her all the ordinances of the church. The following morning she was dressed in female attire, placed on a cart, accompanied by priests, and surrounded by a guard of eight hundred Englishmen, armed with sword and lance, who conveyed her to the old market-place. She wept as they went along, crying out, Oh, Rouen, Rouen, must I then die here? Three scaffolds were erected, one upon which a throne was placed for the Cardinal Winchester and the prelates, and the third, built high and filled underneath with faggots, was for the harmless victim. The ceremony began with a sermon, preached by one of the doctors of the University of Paris. This was followed by exhortations from the bishops to recant all she had said concerning her angels. But, though she was bitterly disappointed that none had come to rescue her, and her confidence in the voices thus sorely tried, because they failed to deliver her, still she affirmed the truth of her assertions, and persisted in rejecting the Pope and his minions. Though you should tear off my limbs and pluck my soul from my body, I would say nothing else, she cried. She knelt upon the platform, invoked God, the Virgin, St. Michael, and St. Catherine, then turned to those who had accused her, forgave them their injuries, and besought their pardon, asking them to pray for her. She entreated the priests each to say a mass for her soul. Her manner, voice, and look were so full of grief, and her appeals so touching that, with contagious sympathy, every beholder wept, even the cruel cardinal. Vexed at betraying such weakness, the judges dried their eyes, and crushing the momentary feeling of kindness for the lovely and friendless girl, proceeded to read her condemnation in a stern voice. The faggots were kindled, and as they crackled and burned beneath the platform, she cried out for a crucifix. An Englishman gave her one he had hastily carved out of a stick, but she entreated them to bring one from the neighboring church, which, after some hesitation, was obtained and held up before her. At last, overcome with terror and suffocated with the smoke and flames that curled about her delicate form, she expired with prayers on her lips. The multitude wept at her sufferings and silently dispersed, full of consternation at the deed. Even the executioner hastened to relieve his terror and remorse by confession. Thus perished a fair and innocent girl who had committed no crime but that of seeking to rescue her nation from the grasp of a hated enemy. Pure, gentle, and heroic, imbued with the superstition of the times, gifted with a vivid, intense imagination, 
that had become morbid through her early habits of lonely communion, it was not wonderful that she should imagine she conversed with spirits in an age when every one consulted unseen spirits and fairies to some extent. She was educated from the cradle in the belief of visions of saints and angels, assurances of which fell daily upon her ear in tales and legends from her mother's lips. The French believed and accepted her as a celestial deliverer, investing her with a supernatural power which she did not claim. On one occasion at Bourges, when the women prayed her to touch crosses and chaplets, she laughed merrily and said, Touch them yourselves, they will be just as good. Her success was simply that of a warrior who inspires his troops with his own courage and confidence of victory, and rushes to battle with an impetuosity that sometimes supplies a lack of skill. She took advantage of the superstition of those she led, as well as those she opposed. She embodied their ideal of an angel in mortal form, by the purity of her beauty, manner, and words, which was manifested even in her equipments, and thus they followed her with a unity and enthusiasm that gave strength to a party that previously owed its weakness to an indolent and despairing prince, and to the divisions and feuds among the leading nobility. Through all the deference and honors paid her, she never lost the childlike sweetness and simplicity that were singularly united in her character with good sense, shrewdness, and woman's subtlety. Charles the Seventh, who owed his crown and kingdom to her heroic exertions, acknowledged the debt by causing a monument to be erected to her memory in Paris, so soon as his power was established. The inhabitants of Rouen testified their admiration of her and their disapprobation of the unjust sentence by erecting a statue that still stands in the marketplace of the old city. The house in which she was born was afterwards repaired on the original plan by the king's orders, and still remains in Dom Remy. It stands near the church and is easily discovered by a Gothic door that supports three scutcheons adorned with the fleur-de-lis, and a statue in which she is represented in full armor. It became national property during the reign of Louis the Eighteenth, who granted the village twelve thousand francs to build a monument to the memory of Joan, eight thousand for the education of young girls in Dom Remy and the neighboring hamlets, and another eight thousand as a support for a sister of charity to teach the school. A fine painting, The Gift of the King, decorates the principal room of the house. In the marketplace, which is surrounded by poplar trees and watered by a fountain, is placed a statue of the maid. On the monument is the simple inscription, To the Memory of Joan of Arc. End of section 14 Recording by Matthew Reese, Davenport, Iowa.